All right. Go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes 5. And while you guys are getting there, I want to pray for us as we kind of get started tonight. Okay. Dear fathers, we come to you in your word tonight. Uh, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would teach us. Um, I pray that you would um, that you would show us where we have bought into into the world's sermons and into the world's messages to us. That you would expose that in us um, where we have believed the world and not you, and that you would teach us to believe you in your word tonight as we study through it. Um, I ask you this in the name of your Son Jesus. Amen. All right, so we've been um, in the book of Ecclesiastes for the last several weeks now, and and the point of Ecclesiastes, as the Bible project puts it, um, is to is to target all the different ways in which we try to find meaning outside of God. Um, and so we've talked about the search for significance or purpose or meaning through the accumulation of knowledge and wisdom um, to grow in our understanding and our accomplishment. We've We've talked about the search for those things through pleasure, and we've talked about the idea of chasing that in our work, um, in, in accomplishing things, and in amassing things, and in just um, working hard and working well. Um, and, and Ecclesiastes is, is, like I said, taking aim at all of those things um, outside of God, trying to find meaning in those things. We said last week that, that all the things we're talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes are like shingles. And that is, shingles are a good thing. They ought to be a part of your house. When you build a house, you, you want shingles, but they're a terrible foundation to build on. You don't use shingles to build on, and that's true of all of the things we've talked about. They, are, they can be good gifts from God, but when we try to, when we try to make them um, the thing we build our life around, then, then our, our life is going to collapse in on that. It's a foundation that doesn't hold us. That's because of this reason. We've, we've kind of hit on this verse a few different times, but, but this really is a big one in Ecclesiastes. It hasn't come up in any of our key texts, but Ecclesiastes 3.11 uh, makes this fairly famous statement that he has put, God has put eternity in our minds, or some translations say eternity in man's heart. Um, and because that is true, because there is this, this thing inside of us that knows that life is bigger than what we can see here, that means that all of these things that we would chase to find meaning in the temporary can never fully satisfy us, can never fully, fully fill us up. And, and so what, what uh, Koheleth, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, is trying to do is he's trying to do you a favor. He's trying to save you the time and effort, saying, man, I, I've been there, and you're wasting your time if you chased after these things as significant. And so, good things, um, but not necessarily, but cannot be the ultimate thing. Now, one other thing we said last week is that this week's topic is a little sticky. Um, that, that this one gets a little messier than all the other ones, and a little bit more tricky when we talk about it being, yes, good, but... Um, there's something extra dangerous, you could say, uh, about the topic that we're looking at tonight. To, tonight we're talking about wealth. 
We're talking about money and the ability to accumulate things to yourself. And the writer here in Ecclesiastes wastes no time in getting to the point. If you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 10, this first line is, is uh, an arrow to the heart, I believe. It says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So from the get-go, we see the issue here, this strong statement, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. That's a really um, ironic and, and almost tragic kind of sentence. You can't, you can't really say that sentence about most other things. You see, he who loves steak will be satisfied by a good steak. She who loves fine wine will be satisfied by a good wine. He who loves his family will be satisfied by intimate relationships with his family. But he who loves money will not be satisfied by money. Think about how that works opposite of what you might expect in everything else. He starts off with this statement. He who loves money will not be satisfied by it, nor he who loves wealth being satisfied with his income. The issue around money, one of the many tricky issues around money, is that the more you need, and I don't want to say money a lot of times, or I might say wealth, but I really do kind of mean generically the accumulation of things that you can own, possessions, whether that's your money or the stuff you buy with it. And the issue around money is that the more you need it to be happy, the less chance it ever has of making you happy. That the more you long for it, which means people who, who really do want money in their lives have no shot at happiness because generally when you want money to be happy, that's all you want to be happy. And because that's the only thing, and that is one of the only things that really can't do it for you, you're doomed to frustration with that. He who wants money, he who loves money, will never be satisfied by it. Um, verses 11 through 12 present kind of a couple other problems with it. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So, two other issues expressed here, and the first one is this. Um, first one is, is an issue that is basically exp uh, experienced by lottery winners and professional athletes who go from nothing or kind of living in poverty to hitting the big time um, really quick, or even superstars who kind of get big really quick. Um, the year's 1990. I'm in kindergarten. I got a sweet flat top uh, spike haircut there, and to me, at that time, the baddest dude on the planet is a, is a fellow by the name of MC Hammer, all right? And, and you may or may not, this, this is what's crazy, I'm talking 1990s, some of you guys are like, oh, I think my parents might have listened to MC Hammer. MC Hammer was the coolest dude ever, that is a, basically, for those who don't know, for whatever reason, whatever, rapper in 1990 kind of just comes onto the scene, explodes on, he's got these huge baggy um, Aladdin genie pants. We just call them hammer pants now. And I knew as soon as I saw my first like 
commercial, I think it was a Pepsi commercial with MC Hammer, first time I saw him on the screen, I had to get me some Hammer pants, yeah. right? And so I got, I got some Hammer pants, imagine this. I was like the smallest little white kindergartner in the world with these huge baggy Hammer pants, and I studied MC Hammer's dance moves so I could dance like him. Um, and I tried to learn his raps so I could rap like him and all these things. But the thing is, actually, in 1990, he wasn't just the coolest guy on the planet to me. He was literally like the coolest guy on the planet. Um, he, he was selling out concerts. His, his albums were going like crazy. He was getting all these endorsements. Um, they were, he was getting his own cartoon on Saturday morning. There was an MC Hammer cartoon. Like he was everywhere, and he was making tons of money. I think they said he was making $30 million a year around that time. And, and I don't remember the year, how, how soon after. I, I want to say it was something like 96, 97, that I found out um, that MC Hammer had already gone bankrupt. Um, after making $30 million a year in just a short amount of time. And part of it was really foolish decisions on his part, but they say actually one of the major issues was that MC Hammer, as soon as he got rich, that there was um, like a thousand friends and family and sort of people who sort of knew him that gathered around pretty quick with their hands out. And, and this is experienced by a lot of people who, who've won the lottery or get rich quick, is, is as um, Kohelet says here, um, that as goods, when goods increase, when money, when possessions increase, so do those who come to eat them, to consume them, to devour them. You get surrounded by parasites, by people who just want a piece of it. And, and then it throws this in here too, that sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is the second issue, that riches can rob people of peace. Because when you have a lot of money, as we said, it, it never fully satisfies, and so you find yourself doing one of two things at night. One is obsessing over how you might be able to gain just a little bit more, or worrying about the, the possibility of losing what you have making sure that you can maintain what you have. And, and so it, it gets difficult to live a life of peace, to get a good night's sleep, the writer says at least, when you got a lot of money. It's going to work against a state of peace in your life. Now he'll go on to this sort of worst-case scenario parable to illustrate in verses 13 through 16. It says this, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Again, like we haven't seen that kind of language used about the other things yet. Wisdom was acquired to his hurt. That actually hasn't been said in Ecclesiastes. It doesn't get said about hard work. I don't think it gets said about pleasure. It gets said about money, that there's like, you can actually gather money and, and pull it together to put like it's, it gets harmful um, to you. Which are, riches were... Um, were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches, riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? The point here is not that this happens to everybody. If you get a lot of money, you're just going to lose it. That's, that's not what he's saying. Again, he's pointing to worst-case scenario to remind us of this idea that you don't, and this is something that's popped up over and over again in Ecclesiastes, you don't have control over it. You can work really hard and you can gather up all you want, but you don't, 
You don't know when an investment is going to go south. You don't know when the market's going to plummet. You don't know when, um, when disaster's going to strike and it's going to cost you. So you really is, you can try your best to get your hands on this and hold it, but it's that word, vanity or vapor. You can't grasp it, even though you may convince yourself that you can, and you may lose it all um, in the process. And, and so it says that this man leaves the world with no more than he came in with. Verse 16, you see that same idea repeated again. This is also grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? He might be kind of restating the point of that story, but he might also be sharing kind of a generic truth, and that is that actually this is the case for every one of us. No matter how much you gather up in your home or in your storage building or whatever it may be, in the end you're going back into the ground with the same amount that you had when you were born. And that is nothing. Um, and, and this is a point that's made not just here, but in s- other places. Job 1.21 says almost the exact same thing. Um, Luke 12, 12.13-21, Jesus tells a parable about a man who keeps stocking up more and more for himself and then dies and basically uh, gets to do nothing with it. 1 Timothy 6.7 um, makes its way towards this point, um, which we, we may hear a little bit more about here in just a bit. But this is a big idea. You, you come out with the same that you, that you go in with. Verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Now, if that verse sounds at all familiar to you, it's because I specifically mentioned it on our first night here. Um, I talked about this idea that Ecclesiastes is not a very good coffee mug verse. In other words, it's or a co- coffee mug book. It's not a book that people take verses from and they slap, uh, they slap those onto coffee mugs because there's a whole lot of stuff that's not very inspirational. And so I specifically mentioned this verse. I said, like, who's going to put Ecclesiastes 5.17 um, and all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger? I was like, nobody's ever going to put that on a coffee mug, right? Um, little did I know how wrong I was about that statement, uh, because just a few days later, I, uh, I stepped out onto my porch to find this box, and uh, reached into the box, only to find my own Ecclesiastes 517 mug that someone had given to me. And so literally, like every morning since then, I've been drinking from this, and I'll look down and, and be drinking here and start laughing as I look at Words about the darkness and vexation and sickness and anger in my life. Um, so I do, okay, another biblical concept here that you ought to give honor to whom honor is due. And I still have no idea who stuck this thing on my porch. So don't be bashful. Don't be shy. I got to know. Who did this? Who put this on my porch? It was not me. It was not me. Who? Who did? Seriously. <laughs> Do you know? I don't know. Ah. But it wasn't me. Fine. Fine. No honor to whom honor is due. Whoever wants to come claim it. Because it's hilarious. Okay. All right. Sweet. Okay. What? Coming. Verse. All right. On to verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. Um. Now we'll actually see kind of after, after our wicked verse 17. This verse would have actually been a little bit better to put on the coffee mug, but we'll look at it here. Verse 18, Behold, 
what I have seen to be good and fitting, and some believe that's actually, that word is better translated beautiful, good and beautiful, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So in light of the fact that you cannot control your stuff, that you can't keep a hold of it, that you don't, and, and not only that, you can't even control your lives. You, like you don't even know how long you have on this earth. He says what we ought to do is enjoy the simple pleasures of life while we can. And the key to doing this is not to see them as the source of our happiness, he says, but to recognize them as gifts from the one true source of happiness. That is God Himself. That if I, if I make my stuff the source for my happiness, I'm not going to be able to do this, but if I can see them as a gift from the source then I can actually enjoy them for what they are, good gifts. Um, and, this, and this plays out, like I said, with money as well. It's not inherently even a bad thing. Um, he'll, he'll say in uh, verse 19, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in, this, in His toil, this is the gift of God. For He will not much remember the days of His life because God keeps Him occupied with joy in His heart. So now we see He's been saying some pretty sharp things about money and wealth. But here He even says that you can actually even enjoy wealth. You can enjoy that even as a gift from God. You can enjoy possessions as, as you have them, though you don't need them. And then he says, he has this really weird line. He says, God has given, verses, verse 19, God has given wealth and possessions and power, or some, some translations say, and the ability to enjoy them. That, that there's actually, that, that in and of itself, that ability to enjoy those things is a gift is a gift from God. How? In what way? In what way is the ability to enjoy your stuff a gift from God? How is it that 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 money can be something that God grants to us, or, or the gift to to be able to enjoy that stuff? Not saying that we need them. Not saying that God is interested in giving lots of money to everybody. But the ability to enjoy it comes from Him. He, here's what I think the answer is, and I don't. I hope I'm not overinterpreting the passage. But we we read the very first verse, chapter 10, says this: that he who loves money cannot be satisfied with it, cannot enjoy it. And so I think the gift that God gives to a person is the ability to see that money is not what he needs. That the ability to be able to have money and have a full grasp on this truth, that this will never fully satisfy me. And, and when God gives us that ability to see and enjoy him as our true hope and our true joy, then that actually allows us to take things like money even and enjoy that rightly. Whereas when, when we put, like I said, all our hope in this, it will never fully satisfy us. And so the gift from God is the ability to recognize that He is the true source that keeps our hearts from being wrapped up in it. Verse 20 says this weird thing, for He will not much remember the days of His life because God keeps Him occupied with joy in His heart. What He's describing is, you, you know how anytime you go, um, actually it's, it's a phrase, it's, it's a common kind of cliche phrase, time flies when you're having fun. The idea is, when you're enjoying something, then you don't actually spend a lot of time thinking about um, what you're missing out on, or what you wish would be happening, or whether this thing is actually good for you. Like, you're just absorbed in it, 
And so time seems to move quickly past. He says, a person who has a right understanding of the good gifts of God is not going to spend their days looking back in some weird nostalgia, wishing for the good old days. And they're not going to spend their time wishing that things will get better in the future. They're simply going to be able to enjoy God and His gifts as they are. And so time flies when you're having fun. In a good way, this person will be absorbed with the joys of life. And... Um, Now he'll show us actually one other way in which a man might not enjoy his wealth. Um, Verse 20, or actually into chapter 6 now. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power or ability to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them. Again, Koheleth wants us to always be aware of this truth that we do not control all of this. We might have all the things we desire and yet we could lose it all to someone else um, through means of injustice or war or an unjust king or through thieves or through dying early with no kids and then our money goes to some stranger that we'll never even know. Like with all our desire to get a hold of this, we may not even be able to. Verse 3 he says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it, that's the stillborn child, comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, that is, rather than the man who lives a long time with no satisfaction. Even though that man should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. So here's another version. The, the first version is you have a whole lot of money and no kids to give it to and die off early and that all goes to a stranger. On the flip side, you may have hundreds of kids and you may live an extraordinary long life. In, in, in Old Testament times, those were two of the biggest blessings a person could have in their life. Many children and a long life. One of the biggest things you could have. And he says, you could have all of that and it still end up being nothing to you. This too could be a life that you do not enjoy and could end with a death unlamented. He says, a person who has no burial. That is like no one around to even mourn you. You may have children, but but they don't even care that much about you. And he says, it's better, um, better to have never been born. It would be better to have never been born than to live this life with a lot of stuff and a lot of kids and a long life, but not even have the ability to enjoy it or to form any sort of meaningful or lasting relationships in it. Last couple verses, chapter, uh, verses 7 and 8. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Uh, Verse 9, actually, better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So he's talking about eating here. um, When he says, all the toil of the man is for the mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. But this eating is being used as a metaphor for the need for us to consume. That is that that, that man works for this ability to consume things, to get more and more and more and use it to my joy and use it to my purpose and use it to my meaning. But he says, we have this appetite that it's, 
that's always going to outrun your ability to gain things. That your appetite is faster and stronger and longer lasting than your ability to gather stuff to yourself. And so you will not win that contest. You can't do it. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or wise or a fool. All of us are going to struggle with the same idea that we'll never be able to get enough to satisfy us. And in contrast to consuming gifts, he talks about the wondering of the appetite in verse 9. He says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. What he says, it is better to have this ability to see things rightly as they are a gift from God um, rather than something that I try and gain everything. Again, this is all the difference. If you need things, like a person needs food to survive, if you need things um, to bring meaning, if you need possessions, if you need a bigger house, if you need a nicer phone, if you need a greater savings account, if you need these things to provide you with meaning or with joy or with significance in your life, then they will never be able to satisfy you. They'll never be able to do that for you. But if you can find meaning and significance and joy in God, then you are able to see these things and enjoy them as good gifts from Him. Um, One last word before I kind of break and then Rachel will get up here. You may be thinking to yourself as we've gone through this study, like, man, Ecclesiastes sure paints a really bleak picture. Um, And I'm not sure if it always works that way. Like, I got, a, I got a neighbor, I got a roommate, or I got someone living next to me in the apartment, and, and they don't follow God, and they're running after things like money, or they're running after things like success, and they don't seem to be, like, miserable and crying into their pillow every night, and they don't seem to be walking around in much, much vexation and sickness and anger, right? Um, and, and that's true. I, I, I don't want to give you this impression. I don't think Ecclesiastes is trying to give this impression that every person who doesn't know God is a miserable person. Um, what Ecclesiastes is saying, though, is that if any of those people paused long enough to consider what their life was actually about, they would be. And that's the purpose, is to take the blinders off of our eyes to say you were made for more than the temporary and so it's never going to satisfy you. No, no. You could, I think, live an okay life in, in blissful ignorance if you never pause to really think about what your life is about. I think you could get by. A lot of people won't, even in ignorance. But there are some people who will be able to almost fool themselves by never pausing long enough to think about their life. Um, but when they do, and when they realize that there's nothing beyond what they can see in front of them that they're putting their hope in, that's going to get really rough really fast. And Ecclesiastes says, that person is a lucky person. Good for them because they've got the grace to actually move into truth now. They've got the gift of seeing life as it actually is in all its misery when God is not a part of it. And so this is the very thing that can drive us to God. And in just a couple of minutes, you can take a break and then Rachel's going to get up here and she's actually going to talk a little bit more fully about this idea of money and how we ought to be thinking about it as Christians. Big question for a lot of Christians today. So take a quick break and then she'll be up here. Coming soon? Will we die soon?
No. That there'll be a new mug coming soon with that bird. Oh, and she said you'll find no, I didn't get that. And I, was I didn't like, get coming that. Soon. And you're like, I don't think people like. No, I didn't get it all. No, I didn't get it all. Okay. So no, what a dumb joke. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I didn't know what she's talking about. Uh, January 20th and 21st, 
we are going to be doing our midwinter retreat. And for those of you who aren't really familiar um, with the retreat, it's just a single overnight. We go out to some cabins near Tulsa, and it is so much fun. We have an awesome speaker, an awesome, awesome speaker this year. So you're going to want to be there. It is $25 if you are a sophomore or older, and $20 if you are a freshman. So jump on it if you're a freshman, because you don't get that discount next year. Also, if you want to register, if you want to register, you can text retreat to this number right here, and it will send you a link to register. So go ahead and do that now, because you don't want to miss it. It will be a retreat. <laughs> oh my goodness. Kelsey and the puns. We love you, Kelsey. I made the mistake of telling her like an embarrassing story this week and she has been like sending me text after text after text of punning. I thought it was, it was like never going to stop. Okay, so continuing this discussion about money, how we're supposed to view it, what we're supposed to do with it. Um, it's actually really interesting. Sunnybrook Christian Church is going to be teaching on this on Sunday. And I don't know if you know how we get ready for sermons at Sunnybrook. But on Monday mornings, we come in, we have staff meeting, and we sit around, and Jim, that's our lead pastor, it's usually him or whoever's preaching, but they discuss kind of the main ideas and the main themes that are going to be in the sermon, and we talk about it as a staff, and we talk about, um, you know, what, what, how, what's the best way to say this, and, and anything that we might be missing, and what have you seen, and what's your experience, and it was really interesting to me when we were when we were doing that with money and I've been getting ready, you know, studying to come talk tonight because I started noticing it's really it's amazing how much our view of money is shaped by the way that we grew up and who who is surrounding us. That was just something that I, I just I watched kind of that playing out and started thinking about that. And then I was talking to a friend of mine who I've known a really, really long time. Um, and have watched, you know, we've kind of grown up together, and I was talking to her about, you know, tonight coming, what I'm going to be talking on, and she loves Jesus, she follows Jesus, um, but she started really opening up to me, I have her permission to share this, so just know that, but she started really opening up and kind of talking about her own struggle with money, and um, she, she told me this story, and she said, you know, I grew up in a family where there just was never enough. We just never had enough. And she said, I, I would feel, you know, really guilty um, if I ever had to ask my parents for something because I felt like they already felt bad enough that they couldn't give us more. And so I, she grew up with that feeling. And she, she described this day in the fourth grade. She was at school in her little classroom, whatever, goes down to lunch, sits in the lunch hall, opens up her lunch box, and there's literally only one thing inside, and it was a dill pickle. And that's what she had to eat for that day. And she said, I made a decision that I was going to take care of myself and that this was never going to happen to me when I grew up, that I was always going to be able to have enough, that I was going to be independent, and that I was never going to have to go without. And she's just kind of working through some of this because as it so happens, she did just that. Like I've watched her be really successful and in fact, like her, her financial advisors have told her, you're set for life. She's really young, you guys. She's not that old. But she's worked hard and she's saved and she's done what she told herself she was going to do. Except now she finds herself in a bit of a circumstance because she, she is having some medical issues. And she's having to take a leave of absence from her job. And she told me, like, 
Rachel, I love Jesus, but I am like, I'm crippled with fear right now. And I'm trying to get to the root of that. And I'm trying to figure out like, why, why am I so afraid? Why is what I have not enough? And I say I trust God to take care of me, but do I really? And maybe you're kind of on the, the opposite end of that. Like maybe you grew up with a lot. And maybe you found some identity in that as you started to get older. Maybe you, maybe you did. Maybe your parents had money and you had things handed to you and you started to really love the fact that, you know what, everybody knows I wear that brand. And you know what, this is the car that I drive. And that's the way that's going to stay. And maybe as you got older, you started just finding so much meaning in that and in being that person. Maybe, maybe you really consider that in as far as like college and career because... I've had this, and, and, and to, to not keep up that lifestyle as I am entering my own adult life would be crazy because I've seen what this has to offer, and, and I have to keep that up because, again, I, I wear this brand. I drive this car. This is who I am. Maybe that's where you are. Or maybe you're just kind of somewhere in the middle. Like maybe you grew up, and, and you did have enough. You had food to eat, and you had clothes to wear, and you, know, you, you had shelter. But maybe that was about it. So I just want to ask you to think about your experience and the way that you view money. Like if you're that person who's right in the middle, did you find yourself as you got older wanting more? Did you find yourself thinking, I'm going to go to college to get a really good job because I'm tired of watching my parents go paycheck to paycheck. There must be more to life than this. I want to travel. I want experiences. I want to have the security that I think money can provide. I want to have the comfort of that. You know, it's interesting to me that no matter where you land in the spectrum, like there's that one underlying truth that Drew just talked about, that it's just not enough. Like we, we, no matter where we're at, we just we, we can't seem to get there. It's not enough. Um, <clears throat> here's the really tricky part, you guys, is what Drew was saying at the end when he was wrapping up. I'm sure you know those people. I'm sure you know those people who are not stopping to take the time to really think through um, what they're doing with their life. And when you look at them, it sure looks like money is satisfying them. I think that that's some of the danger. Um, Ryan and I, we've got a friend that we've known, I don't know, Ryan's probably known him longer, 15 plus years, okay? And we watched this guy, um, went to high school together. Ryan really grew up with him, but his family used to be like in the middle, right? They had enough. And then his family got into oil. And when his family got into oil, um, we really watched like, he started changing a lot in high school. He started inching more and more and more towards this person who um, was very self-obsessed, preoccupied with getting more, um, all about the possessions that, that he could gain. And you know what now? Like he's still living that life. And here's the really scary part. I don't think he's stopping. And I think he is letting himself be satisfied with his yacht and with his enormous house and with all of his cars. And I'm watching all of this play out and that should unsettle us a little bit. Because see, ultimately we learn like money can't satisfy. That's so true. But I think that we can allow ourselves to be satisfied with the pursuit, to be satisfied with the idea that this is what I'm going to get in this life, and that this is what I'm going to chase. I really do. Um, I, I, I think that that should give us some unrest, you know? Um, 
Here's what I want you to take away tonight, okay? Money is neutral, but your heart is not. I'm going to say it again. Money is neutral, but your heart is not. Everything that Drew was describing from Ecclesiastes is true. Like, money isn't wicked. The love of money is. And we should, we, we should be concerned of how this can corrupt us so quickly. And I, you know, just as I've been studying this, I have been amazed. You guys know how much the Bible talks about money? A ton. Why is that? I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things. This is not... So much of our identity can be caught up in this, and so much of our security can be caught up in this idea of, of money, that I can provide for myself and I can take care of myself, and that leaves no room for God. And it is such an easy trap to fall into. And here's the really tricky part, and here's the dangerous part. Because it's involving our heart, it's an ongoing issue. Like, we can't just get, get our mindset straight tonight and we leave here and go out and we're good. That would be awesome. It's not going to happen. Just stop for a minute and think about how much money is going to pass through your hands in the span of your lifetime. That's a lot of chances for your heart to get it wrong. We've, we've got to be aware. And here's the other really hard part. Like if this is something that you struggle with, it's not one of those sins that you can just say, I'm going to cut off my hand, I'm never using money again, I'm going to go live on a rock in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere and, and let you know, the birds come feed me like prophets of old. You know, I mean, we can't do maybe Scott Irwin could. You'd be the only one, the only one. But we can't like we can't do that. And I would even say, like, I don't think we're supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to be living um, in community. We're supposed to be representing the gospel. We don't just isolate ourselves. So if we have to use money to survive, what are we supposed to do? Um, We're going to go to First Timothy six. And I'm going to read. Um, starting in verse, starting in verse three, it says, "If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words." which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved and in mind and deprived of the truth. And here it is. He's, he's coming up to it. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with those, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That last verse should really scare us, you guys. How quickly that can happen. And I want to just, I want to think for a minute about um, just our hearts where money is concerned and kind of about the why behind it. And that's really going to be my challenge for you guys tonight um, is later this week to get alone with God, 
to pray to pray through your heart. But I really do, like my friend who said, like, I'm trying to get at the root of this fear. Like, that's my hope and my prayer for all of us, is that we would, we would get at the root of some of that. Like, why, why, why am I wanting more? Why am I letting some of this define me? Um, you know, what, what is it that I'm working towards? What, it, what is it that I'm hoping to gain? Um, what's my identity hoping to be, you know, caught up in? I think those questions are important. Um, and so if we see, when we go through Ecclesiastes, if we see that, again, money isn't wicked, it's our hearts that can be, I want to also ask the question, like, how are believers supposed to handle our money? Like, how are we supposed to do this, and how are we supposed to do it well? Um, Paul's writing here in Timothy, and he takes a little bit of a break, but let's pick it back up in verses 17 through 19. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You guys seeing a theme here? Right? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I really, really wrestle with this idea. Like, I've been, I've sat under a lot of good teaching, and I, and I've, I personally know um, what the Bible has to say about money and how that should shape my view. And I just am going to confess to you tonight, like, there have been times in my life where I have been, like, angry about that, and where I've almost seen God as, like, hateful in, in wanting me to have such a generous heart. And I think, like, when that happens to us and our heart is going there, um, like, we, we have an incomplete view of the gospel when that's happening. Because the way that we're called to live um, and the way that we're called to live with our money, I want you to understand, I want myself to understand that that, that's, that is also a gift to us. Like, that is for our greater good, that we would build the kingdom, that we would seek Christ first above all else. Um, and, and back to kind of that theme of ultimately that is what's going to satisfy. And sometimes it can be hard in the moment. And if I catch my heart hardening over my, my money or my wealth or what I have and wanting to hold on to it too tightly, that needs to be the first place I go is understanding that I'm the one who's wrong. And I need to get before God and I need to repent and I need to get in community and I need to fix my eyes on the gospel. I need to ask God to change my heart. I need to repent of those things. Um, Paul says in Philippians, he's, he's actually talking to the, the Philippians and he's thanking them because when he was in Thessalonica, which if you've been with us this semester, like you know, we, we were studying um, Thessalonians, but he's, he's thanking them and he's saying, thank you for providing for me. And I know you're going to continue to provide. Um, and basically he's saying like, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you're giving money, but his whole reasoning behind it when, you, when you're reading that verse is, Here's the line he says, um, because I long for you to have the fruit that is the result of that giving. Like so many times we think, um, you know, that, that something's going to be so hard for us, it's going to be so hard to give, and that's because it is. That should be an indication to us. Like if it feels like, ooh, no, I don't want to do that, that should be an indication to us that we probably need to check our heart. You know, it, 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 it should be saying, like, God is after our holiness. He's after our heart. He's after us. And so when he's asking us to live with hands that are open, 
like that's that's for our greater good. There's a reason for that. It's going to produce fruit. And God doesn't need your money. Like, I hope you know that. God doesn't need your money. But it is one of his main ways of growing children. I do believe that. I think it's such an important piece of um, our sanctification is, is and doing this well and living the Christian life well and following Jesus is holding those things loosely and giving generously because that's what helps keep my heart in check. That's how I'm going to continue to be sanctified and blameless and pure, and that's how God's going to refine me, and that's huge. Um, I remember growing up, and if you grew up in church, like you probably heard this, you know, you give your tithe, you give your 10%, it comes off the top, my little Sunday school class, like you don't spend anything before, you know, if you have the dollar, you know, that 10 cents goes first. Some of you who didn't grow up in church might be thinking 10%, like that's a lot, you know, maybe that's where you're starting, but that's not where I was starting when I had a job. This was really like ingrained in me was this idea of tithe and this idea of 10%, you know, this was huge. Um, and so I, I got, well, my first job, I wasn't following Jesus at all. But a few years down the line, um, having my job, following Jesus, and it was like a no-brainer for me. Like, absolutely, for sure, 10%. You know it. It's coming off the top. I'm given that. I remember the day, I remember where I was when I realized that God might actually want more than 10% from me. Because where I was at, the 10%, yeah, you know, like it, it, it was hard sometimes, but mostly I was fine, you know, and it was just something I had resolved to do, and that's great. Like, I, I'm thankful that I was doing that. But I had this moment where I realized, like, what if he wants more? What, what am I going to do? And I, I had duped myself, I, I don't know how, um, into thinking that when it came to money, like the 10% was God's and that was fine and I would always be fine with it, but the 90% was mine and I could do with it exactly what I wanted. Um, and I had this moment where I realized, like if I'm going to follow Jesus and love Jesus, that's just not true. Um, we have to be willing to ask the question. And I'm not saying everybody has to go out and sell all you own. Again, I hope surely you're not hearing me say that because we've learned that we can, we can enjoy, you know, the good things. Like, I, serious coffee drinker, and I will go spend $5 at Aspen and enjoy, and I will worship God. Thank you, God, for that coffee. I mean, you know, like, and I'm not here to try to make you feel bad about that. Um, but something that really stuck, stuck with me was um, when I was in college, um, I was interning um, with, with a church and a youth group, and we went to Memphis, and we spent a week um, like helping people that truly were poverty-stricken build houses and, and like repair their homes that they were already in and just spent the week serving them. And I got to meet the director, and he was seriously a cool dude. Um, and, and he was there, he and his family, you know, I mean, this was their life. I was there for a week. They were living this, you know, that was, that was their ministry super cool guy. Um, but he had a lot to say about, uh, and it was really the first time I, I even remember hearing, he had a lot to say about the pursuit of the American dream and how that could so quickly entangle and ensnare and entrap us and how it could ruin our hearts and harden our hearts towards God and towards spiritual growth. And he and his own wife in their life, like they were, they were truly living this out. Um, and, and how they were doing that is before he came and worked like in this ministry, he was a stockbroker. And like a super successful one. And he and his wife um, 
they loved Jesus and, and, and as they kind of wrestled through, okay, like what are we supposed to do with, you know, how are we supposed to be handling our money? Um, they both really felt God calling them that whatever the median income was for that year, say it was 40000 I'm just making that up, they decided that we will live on 40000 And whatever we make, we're going to give the rest. And, and we're going to allow that to serve you know, the kingdom of God. And I'm not here to tell you that you have to do that. But I am here to say, like, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to be willing to. You need to ask that question. Because when Jesus says, come and follow me and I'm after your heart, we don't get to just give, yeah, here's the 10%. I'm going to keep the 90 over here, like I thought. That's just not how it works. That, that, wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be for the best of us. That could ruin us. And so I hope, I hope that wherever you're at, here's the other thing. Guys, it's not going to get easier to give. It's really not. You might think, oh, when, I, you know, when I'm out and I have a job. No. It actually, like a lot, of, a lot of studies seem to show, you know who gives the most? And percentage-wise, people, people who are struggling. It seems that the more that you have, almost that idea of the tighter I have to hold it. I can't sleep at night. I can't let this go. It's owning me. I've become a slave to it. So giving is not going to get easier. And I've talked about this a little bit before with giving. Uh, but you should, be, you should be giving sacrificially, you guys. You just should. I don't care if you make $100 and living sacrificially for you means that you don't go out to eat on Sundays. That instead you go home and you make a meal and, and that you're giving. You know, like I, I think that that's awesome. But I think you need to get with God, and I think you need to get on your face, and I think you need to ask what that's supposed to look like in your life. And I think you need to talk about that in community and hold one another accountable. Um, and again, like it would be so great if we could just get our hearts right and leave here, and they're good forever. But that's not the case. Like your, your income is going to change over the years. Things that, you know, your needs are going to change. Like this is something that we have to continually bring before the Lord and ask, you know, God, like, what am I supposed to be doing with this? I hope that you're using the money that you have um, to, to bless the church, to give to the church. I hope you're using it to take care of your brothers and sisters when that's happening. I hope that you are using it to show lost people that you have a generous heart and what God has done in you, that it would open up their hearts and soften it to the truth of the gospel. Like, I hope that you are looking for ways to be generous and, and looking for ways to do that and, and to love people. So I just, I want to make sure that we understand um, in all of this practical money talk that there's also this other side, um, which is simply when you are enjoying those gifts, like make sure that you're worshiping God. Again, it's not bad, but understand, you know, Ecclesiastes says, um, I think so does First Timothy, that whatever we have, like whatever God's allowing, whatever we, we have, it's because God's allowing it, okay? And so we need to be thankful for that. Like I do, when you get that $5 cup of coffee, like I hope you are sitting there and I hope it causes you to worship and to love the giver and to say, God, thank you for this. And if you have plenty of clothes to wear, I hope you are not just thinking that that magically appeared or that you are taking care of yourself. I hope that you see that as direct provision from God, that he's clothing you, that he's feeding you, that he's caring for you. I hope that um, as we put God in his proper place, that we can truly enjoy those gifts and that we can just love him more. Because that's the point of the gifts, right? It's to, it's to, it's to stir up in me worship. It's to stir up admiration 
is to stir up, like, God is so incredible. He created this, and he's giving this to me. Like, you ever just stop and think about, you know, God could have just given us, like, bland stuff to eat, but he doesn't. Like, food is amazing, right? Like, there's so many, there's so many good things, and even clothes, you know? Like, if you like fashion, that's cool. I mean, that's fine, you know? It is. Like, okay. Like, there's so many, there's so many different things that, like, you, you didn't just think that up. You know that, right? Like, God put these gifts in us, and, 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 and he gives us these, um, these things to enjoy, and, and even our talents and all of that. Um, it's to cause us to love him more. It's to cause us to worship. It's to cause us to further his kingdom and to seek that first above all else. I want to just pray for us and, and pray for our hearts, but I am serious about that challenge. I want you to spend some time alone with God this week asking, like, where am I falling short in this area that I need to stop and repent? And, and, it, and if you are struggling with that seems so hard, where do I need to go back to the gospel? Um, where am I wrong? And then, and then talk about that and confess that in community. God, we are, we are grateful to you, not just for your gifts. I'm so grateful to you, God, for your word and for your Holy Spirit. Um, and that you don't just leave us um, with money and then no instruction. You don't just leave us with wealth or possession and no instru- instruction, um, things that could so easily ensnare us and, and, and entangle our hearts, but you tell us how we're supposed to live that out, and not that it's easy and not that it's even an easy conversation. It isn't, but we can trust your Holy Spirit and we can trust your church We can trust um, what you're going to do in our hearts, what you're going to do in community. And for that, I am so thankful. And God, I do pray that you would give us hearts um, that are generous, hearts that are seeking you first above all else and seeking your kingdom. I pray you would rid us of our selfishness. I pray that you would give us a greater understanding of the gospel. I pray that you would fill us with love for those around us and and an understanding that when we're giving, it's to help others. I pray, God, that that would be more important to us than the car that we drive or the things that we have in our closet or the latest computer. God, may we love you and may we love people. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Hey, guys, I think it goes without saying. But, like, this, this really isn't, it could be a complicated conversation. And so Scott and Drew and I are here. We're always here. We would love to talk more with you um, anytime. Think we have food? We have food? All right. Stay around. Eat. <laughs>